Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm here today in New York City, taping with Professor Akil Lamar. Hello, Akil. Uh, and not just in New York City, but uh, you're back from an adventure, Andy. Yes, in fact, um, we're here together in New York because uh, Ever- an Everscholar course is launching tonight, and I'm back from 12 days in Greece um, with the, the first uh, international Everscholar course, which was called Ancient Greece Complex Histories. And uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we uh, had, the, had the, the several plagues. We had uh, high temperatures of over 105 degrees almost every day, and the fires, and we went to Epidaurus to see a performance of Euripides' Helen, and it was canceled because of the risk of fire, and <laughs> so it was a crazy time, but, but a memorable and wonderful time. So from a biblical perspective, uh, the question is, were there frogs and locusts and uh, boils and all of that? <laughs> yes, well, that's what, it, that's what it felt like, indeed. So um, we're here after the fireworks of our, uh, our episodes with uh, Neil Katyal, which uh, was were really spectacular, and actually, I think we'll have some hearkening back to uh, to some of that today. Yeah, we may talk about both Neils that we've talked about in our recent episodes, Neil Gorsuch and, and Neil Katyal, in uh, our conversations today. Yes, so um, we're going back to profiles of the various Supreme Court justices that sit on the bench now, and we're up to uh, the last two. Um, the first of which is uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Right. We were going to just do this, the series straight through, um, but uh, we ended up talking a little bit more about some of them and then the, the Breyer retirement or not retirement, that the, you know, will he, won't he um, Hamlet uh, issue um, arose. And then uh, uh, we interrupted the series because um, Neil Katyal came to, to the Yale campus and uh, we had uh, a special opportunity to to sit down with him, and, and we couldn't resist the opportunity, in fact, to, to, to do a two-part episode. So that, that's why when we took a break. Remember when we were going to do all eight justices, all nine justices in one session? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So um, it, t- it turns out that I, I, I can be long-winded, uh, apparently. <laughs> or there's just a lot to say. Um, okay. So Brett Kavanaugh, uh, was uh, nominated by President Trump. And, of course, President Trump, as we've discussed earlier, had provided a list of justices when he was running for president that, that he um, would choose from uh, or planned most likely to choose from. And he selected uh, Kavanaugh. And when he did, uh, you were prominent in uh, in your comments on that nomination. Yeah, let me take a step back because the, the, the Trump list... Uh, was a uh, a work in progress. The first list, which I think had 17 names on it, uh, uh, was issued in the middle of uh, his campaign for the presidency. So let's say it, it came out somewhere around August of uh, 2016. And I believe there were 17 names. Uh, could be off by one. And Kavanaugh's name was not on it, and it was conspicuous in its absence because um, conservatives across the country have had long seen Brett Kavanaugh as um, a possible justice. Um, um, maybe actually the he was the, the person that um, um, was the favorite um, to uh, be on the, the Supreme Court, and so uh, and and Trump didn't 
come up with a list, thank goodness. The Federal Society, um, uh, or at least people affiliated, closely affiliated with the Federal Society, uh, Leonard Leo, most um, uh, importantly, um, uh, a high um, official in the Federal Society, they're the ones who generated the list. Um, and Trump signed off on it, and I thought this was a good thing um, uh, because I didn't want Trump picking um, uh, his own folks. I mean, he, uh, he, um, I think Afrin Neocatial says, you know, he was afraid he was going to pick Judge Judy or something like <laughs> that, but, but it, it would have been worse than Judge Judy if Trump had, had consulted his own um, uh, preferences and list because... I think that Donald Trump is now and has always been, in a word, lawless. He, he, he just deeply doesn't believe in law. And there are different ways of understanding um, law. Um, and, and it's easy to make fun of lawyers, and, and people do all the time, uh, lawyers' jokes, for example, you know, I never tell lawyers jokes, by the way, because um, lawyers never think they're funny and regular people never think they're jokes. Um, but um, That's a lawyer's joke. That is a lawyer's joke. Well, <laughs> so, so that was Cicero. I shall not um, uh, mention uh, the following five facts. Um, uh, so, um, so what's Trump's understanding of law? Um, it's... Uh, his personal understanding, I think, comes from two or three quadrants. So, one, his own lawyer um, was basically a mob lawyer, Roy Cohn, who represented, I think, the worst of the profession. Um, and um, and I'm, I'm not saying that um, uh, Trump is mobbed up, um, but I'm not saying that he's not. Um, I am saying that his lawyer for many, many years was Roy Cohn, who was a thuggish fellow, who um, had mob connections. Um, uh, and Cohen is no longer with us, so I, I have legal freedom to do that because actually um, you can't legally libel the dead or slander the dead. Um, so, um, but, um, uh, uh, so, but Trump's lawyer did have mob ties. And that's one, and, and Trump liked Cohen because Cohen was a fighter. And Trump believed in fighting. And then Trump's experience in the law was um, uh, because of his divorces in, in family court. Um, and that's the most lawless part of our legal system. Um, there, there are very few rules. That the, the judges who are in charge of fa family court are um, actually often laws unto themselves. They, they, um, they just um, um, often base their rulings, in my view, and I used to teach family law, on, on whim um, and caprice and, and, and their personal assessment of things. So, so I actually think that this is not the legal system uh, at its best. And, and Andy is just biting his tongue as I'm saying all this because he has you know, some experience with this and, I, and his experience confirms what I, what I just said. Um, yeah, um, I just feel that uh, I understand that marriage is a contract and so you, it's hard to avoid the legal system, but um, it's just not the right venue for settling these deeply emotional issues. Um, that get into uh, questions about children and so forth. And then the third area that Trump has familiar with legal area is basically uh, real estate law, um, which is site-specific. Every piece of real estate is 
unique. That's actually, you know, uh, one of the things you learn in the first week of, of a basic course in property is the uniqueness of real estate. So that's not true of other kinds of, of property where, you know, um, um, this widget, it's a physical item, is, you know, functionally indistinguishable for th- from that widget. You, you go to the um, uh, Apple store and, and all the iPhones of a certain um, uh, um, uh, class are, are, you know, basically indistinguishable. Andy just went and got some, some fun um, audio equipment uh, from, from B&H, and he got it in a box, and it was no different than the, the, the equipment that he could have gotten in, in a different box. That's not real. Every piece of real estate is in a unique part of planet Earth, and, and no two parts are exactly the same. They don't have the same coordinates. So um, the law of real estate is like family law in certain ways, very idiosyncratic. Um, um, they're always, they're, they're, they're rules, but then there are exceptions to the rules, and zoning is all about the exceptions to the rules, and it can be extremely corrupt because there's a lot of, of money involved in all of this. And uh, actually, um, um, uh, one of the, Andy, you're from New Jersey. New Jersey is notoriously corrupt in part because of... Um, um, uh, real estate developers, because you got Philadelphia at one end and New York at the other end, and there's a lot of money to be made in in real estate and where the where the roads go and and where the um, shopping malls go. And and Andy, you of course are, um, are always telling me about Robert Cairo and um, and but but land law can be lawless, and I um, in, in, in uh, you get exceptions um, for zoning, and and you get exceptions by by greasing palms of, of um, uh, people kind of in the, the law world to some extent. So, so that's Trump's understanding of law. Law is um, uh, um, real estate law, which is corrupt, family law, which is lawless and corrupt, mob law, which isn't you know, even law, it's, it's just raw power. And he is a business person to some extent, but he sees law the way some bad business people do as just a set of obstacles, as a so, set, of, set of things to be weasel, you know, to get over or under or run, as opposed to, let me just give you a different vision, and then let's take our hero, Abe Lincoln. Okay, because I, I made lawyer jokes before, um, even though I said I wasn't going to, but yeah, that was a lawyer joke. Um, and um, if you want to talk about the dignity and majesty of law, what law can be at its best, I'll just tell you, th- uh, you know, uh, say say three things: Sir Thomas More, Abraham Lincoln, Mahatma Gandhi, lawyers all. You know, law at its best can be very noble, which is why I went into it. Why you know your son Matthew um, went into it. Lincoln is a lawyer, and he believes deeply in law. You cannot understand. He's a Paul, also. You can't understand Lincoln without understanding. He's a Paul, and he's a lawyer in his very bones, and he sees law um, as a way of mediate, uh, mediating conflict, providing mechanisms by which human beings can actually get along, um, avoid hurting each other, and actually can cooperate. So, so for Lincoln, law isn't just an obstacle, it's an opportunity. It's, it's how we think about justice, how we think about fairness, how we think about working together. That's not Trump's vision of law. So uh, and I know you have a thought on this, um, but but I'm glad Trump didn't try to pick people on his own because if he tried to pick people on his own, he would have picked 
Maybe legally incompetent people because he's not a good judge of talent. He doesn't understand what law really is all about. And his idea would be, ah, these are my justices. And, and if I appoint them, then they owe a fealty to me for life, which is the exact opposite, of course, of the idea of judicial independence that we've been talking about. So thank goodness he didn't know the, appoint, uh, the, the people on his list very well. They were, the list was generated by Leonard Leo. Um, they weren't Trump judges, um, um, or would-be Trump judges. They, they were um, people that the Federalist Society in general thought very well of because they were uh, people committed to legal principles. The Federalist Society has certain principles that of, of uh, judicial fidelity to text, history, structure, um, uh, and, and the like. And notably, and I'll tell you I have my theory of why, Brett Kavanaugh was not on that initial list of 17. But Andy, I know you had a thought before we return to that. Yeah, well, two things. One on Trump um, and, and uh, real estate law. You know, in New York in particular, you mentioned New Jersey, but yeah. New York has the additional dimension, literally, of verticality and mm-hmm. air rights yes. is another area of law that... Yes. Uh, um, that Trump uh, exploited. In fact, my wife uh, worked for Tiffany for many years, and uh, the Trump Tower is next door. Mm-hmm. And Trump Tower was only built by because he was able to purchase the air rights that Tiffany owned mm-hmm. next door. So Tiffany mm-hmm. could have gone higher, didn't mm-hmm. want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so Trump bought that right and then made Trump Tower higher mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as a result. So, um, And that's not necessarily an example of corruption, but you know, air rights, uh, and of course, our friend uh, Dave Richards is a is an an expert on on air rights. Great. Well, let, let me let me just um, we uh, give you um, uh, an, uh, uh, an, another example. This isn't from uh, it's from the opposite coast. I spent a lot of time in uh, Pepperdine uh, uh, summers in, in in Malibu, um, and uh, the Pepperdine campus is um, in many uh, surveys generally reckoned the the prettiest campus in America um, and this is all a function just of of a zoning exception um, because without um, a certain um, zoning approval there's nothing you can do it's just barren hills you can't even graze but with the right kind of zoning approval you can turn that into you know mega million dollar views um, and that's all just in the discretion to some extent of the zoning officials, are they going to approve this development plan or are they not going to approve this development plan? And um, where there's a lot of money sloshing around. So, so Pepperdine was basically a, a ranch. Um, I used to Malibu, excuse me, was a Malibu ranch and it was donated and um, uh, the, uh, for a charitable purpose, a university purpose. And, and they took the, these, I don't know, 5,000 acres, whatever, and they turned it into just the most extraordinary set of buildings uh, um, with spectacular gazillion-dollar views. But that's all simply because law enabled them to do that. If you had zoned it instead um, for um, uh, for um, just agricultural use, it's it's worthless. And uh, the, the other thing was your comment on Lincoln um, and the law. And of course, Lincoln, early in his career, makes clear his his reference for the law in his great first great address, the Lyceum Address, right. where he's talking about the post heroic generation, the people, you know, the people that that lived after the founders died, um, and what do what is their opportunity to to be heroic? What's going to help them 
you know, to keep the country together? What can they do to help keep the country together? And he worries about uh, a towering genius um, that will come along, a demagogue. And, of course, he's referring to uh, Andrew Jackson, you know, uh, in, in, or maybe in, even Stephen Douglas. Some people have speculated. Yeah, although this is eighteen thirty. Yes, oh, well, he's got Douglas on his mind early on. Mm-hmm. Remember, Douglas, you know, <laughs> um, uh, tried to woo um, uh, uh, Mary. Um, so, so he's thinking about Douglas from a very early age. And uh, but at any rate, he says, um, uh, in terms of his, uh, you know, comparing his generation to the to the previous to the revolutionary generation, he said. Passion has helped us, but can do so no more. It will in the future be our enemy. Reason, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason, must furnish all the materials for our future support and defense. Let those materials be molded into general intelligence, sound morality, and in particular, a reverence for the Constitution and laws. Yes. Yeah. So, so the metaphor. So Trump sees law as just an obstacle. It's an impediment to his will. Suckers serve in the army. Yes, it's just, it's because it, it's all about his will. Um, um, I see law not merely as an obstacle to my will, but as an instrument, um, a guidepost. I can learn a lot about what I should want to do. Um, it, 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 it can even it can even shape my my desires. Um, if at the end of the day, you know, my ultimate. Um, objective is is to be useful um, to, to others. Um, law helps me figure out how I can do that. It's an instrument and not merely an obstacle. Okay, so back to Trump and his list. Um, uh, and this was an innovation to basically announce in advance um, whom you're going to select for the Supreme Court. Remember, there was um, um, a vacancy. Uh, uh, Justice Scalia had, had unexpectedly passed away um, uh, President Obama had nominated Garland, but he wasn't going to get a hearing and, and going to go through. Um, and, uh, and if Hillary wins, then it's going to be Garland, presumably. He'll, he'll get confirmed in the lame duck or early in a Clinton administration. Um, but if Trump wins, what? And Trump says, ah, if I win, I'm going to pick from this list. And this is his way of signaling, in part, to evangelicals, um, ev- uh, fundamentalist um, uh, Protestants and, and, uh, uh, and conservative Catholics. This is his way of saying, I'm going to pick someone that you're going to like because th- um, these are basically justices, um, judges at the time, who um, will be highly likely to v- um, uh, vote to at least limit and maybe eliminate Roe versus Wade. Remember, uh, many Republicans were traumatized when various Republican presidents put on Republican justices who voted to actually, in fact, reaffirm Roe versus Wade, Anthony Kennedy, uh, Senator Day O'Connor, um, and David Souter, and, and the rallying cry uh, uh, among conservatives um, of a certain sort was, no more Souters. Remember also, we're going to talk about Roe more, obviously, t- today, um, that um, Roe versus Wade, it was a, um, a, a seven to two decision, uh, and um, uh, and um, most of the seven were actually Republican appointed justices. There was Earl um, Warren Burger, excuse me, the Chief Justice appointed by Richard Nixon, the author of the opinion Harry Blackman, another Republican Minnesota twin appointed by Richard Nixon. 
uh, Potter Stewart, appointed by Dwight Eisenhower. Um, there was um, uh, uh, William uh, Brennan, who, w- although a Democrat, was appointed by a Republican president, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. There was um, Lewis Powell, Southern Democrat, but really conservative, again, appointed by Richard Nixon. So five of the justices were appointed in, in, the, in the row majority were appointed by um, uh, re- Republican presidents. They were, they were joined by um, uh, two Democrats appointed by Democrats, Thurgood Marshall and, and William Douglas. So, so Roe was a product of Republican justices, and Republican justices had reaffirmed Roe, and the Republican base was hopping mad, no more suitors, and this was Trump. And, and Trump is you know, out of nowhere. He has no track record of any sort of government service, so you don't know where he's coming from. This was his way, that list of saying, I'll give you the justices you want. I'll pick from this list that's been picked by the Federalist Society. Why wasn't Kavanaugh on it? That's the question. And in my view, here's why. Because Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit had not um, basically auditioned for the Supreme Court by body-slamming Obamacare. This is before the Sebelius case reached the Supreme Court. He had written an opinion that that kind of um, um, avoided taking a strong position on Sebelius, on Obamacare. And that was a litmus test for some um, uh, conservatives or for for Trump. Oh, you know, he shows too much independence. He wasn't, you know, uh, necessarily solid and reliable on Sebelius. Good for him, in my view, because um, the only Republican who uh, really um, on the Supreme Court who acquitted himself, in in my view, um, uh, uh, well, um, was the the Chief Justice John Roberts, um, who voted in the main to uphold Obamacare, but that why Kavanaugh wasn't on the initial list, and Gorsuch got the nod for the first um, uh, vacancy, and we've talked about him before, of course, in an earlier episode. That was um, the Scalia slash Garland seat. Garland never had it, of course, but but was nominated for it. So he wasn't on Kavanaugh was not on the initial list. He got added later um, because Trump would update the list from time to time. Um, and um, when he was nominated, um, Andy, as you uh, know, and as probably some of our audience members know, um, within minutes of that nomination, the New York Times, within minutes, the nomination was about 9 or so p.m. Uh, in the evening, and by 9.05, the New York Times had an op-ed that had obviously been written in advance um, endorsing the Kavanaugh nomination and the... And the um, Headline said something like, you know, a, a liberal's case for, for Brett Kavanaugh or something like that. Um, I wrote it. I had written it in advance. on, um, um, uh, and, and I didn't know, obviously, that the Kavanaugh would be picked. But, but the New York Times asked me, if Kavanaugh is picked, um, would you please write an op-ed on the topic? They didn't tell me what to say. Um, uh, and, my, uh, and I wrote it in advance um, on the possibility that he might be nominated. And I began... Um, in a very provocative fashion. I didn't pick the headline. They picked the headline by saying that this nomination was um, Donald Trump's finest hour, his classiest move, the the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Um, And that was pretty controversial when I said it, and I'll try to explain, Andy, you know, what was behind that. Right. So I think that, uh, you know, your authorship of that op-ed has kind of, you know, outlived its... uh, 
its usual shelf life of, of such a, such a, such an op-ed. But um, and I think there's a, a couple of reasons for that. One is that, of course, during the confirmation hearings, uh, some information or allegations at least came out regarding uh, Christine Blasey Ford and so forth. This was not on the agenda when you wrote this. But nevertheless, because of the controversy, not everyone is that sensitive to the timeline. Right. So. I, I wrote the op-ed in, in July. Um, I testified um, at the Senate hearing in support of the nomination. I think it was September 6th. That it might have been the 5th or the 4th. But September 6th was actually my 60th birthday. So I remember it, I had to go down during my birthday um, uh, uh, you know, to take the train. So I, I sort of wasn't a, a, around. Um, but um, I was asked by my country to offer my assessment and I it's like jury duty and in my view when when asked you 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 do your duty and 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 my duty uh, was to tell the senate what I wrote in the op-ed that I thought he was actually the best um on republican nominee that I could have imagined um and 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 others on the list were people who were closer friends of mine and I, I'll go into that because it's not about friendship um and I'll tell you why I actually um uh, again um uh, thought Kavanaugh was um a, a good pick um, the opposite of Judge Judy, um, and um, and the Christine Blasey Ford allegations um, didn't uh, arise until three weeks later, basically. Um, and I took no position on that because I had no firsthand knowledge of adjudicative fact. I, I wasn't in the room when all those things happened, so how would I know what happened about that? Um, but I do did think then, and I still think that Kavanaugh, um, Kavanaugh's credentials um, uh, play, um, made him at that moment when nominated um, the best person on the list. And I had um, actually researched almost all the people on the list, and I had criteria for measuring them, and the criteria weren't, who's my pal? There were people on the list who were personally closer to me, but the way I graded it, as it were, as kind of an academic, I thought Kavanaugh should be at the, the, the very tippy-top of that list, and I'll you know, I'll tell you, you all why in a minute. Um, in a minute, but um, you're right. It had nothing to do with the the, the later allegations because they weren't um, uh, they hadn't occurred yet. And then there was all there were also those I think who felt that um, that speaking for his nomination it was the equivalent of saying that he was the best choice of anyone, not just the not just the best choice of of people on the list. But the best choice of anyone, which I, I'm right. sure you don't feel right. That and in way. fact, I mean, if you look at the op-ed, I said I think think he, you know, the only person who, you know, they, that was more qualified was uh, Merrick Garland, and I had publicly supported Merrick Garland. But this is the problem of people who understand baseball and football and soccer um, and gymnastics better than they understand the rules, and there are rules of the nomination game. A president gets to make the nomination, and this president was never going to nominate Brett Gar uh, uh, Merrick Garland because um, he he had uh, and and the Senate confirms. Now, when a party has both the presidency and the Senate, and the Republicans had both the presidency and the Senate, because my team lost in 2016. You know, I tried to warn the world about Donald Trump, but my team lost, and it lost not just the presidency but the Senate. When you lose both you're not going to get your nominee to the Supreme Court. So the question is, you know, the, the other team is going to get its nominee. Who's the best person 
on that side, who's the best Republican imaginable? And my thought was, um, Brett Kavanaugh, for reasons I'm going to go into, you're not going to get Merrick on. The, the Democrats couldn't stop it, even if they wanted to. They didn't control the Senate, and of course they didn't control the presidency. And just to repeat, the Merrick Garland seat was not stolen. Now, I know that's already ancient history because the Merrick Garland seat, the the uh, uh, Scalia seat was, was filled by Gorsuch, but it wasn't stolen because at the time the nomination was made, the Democrats did not control the Senate. And when you don't control the Senate, it's not a gimme. Um, um, so um, uh, the Senate is capable of breaking serve. They're not capable, in my view, um, unless they have uh, the other opposition party has an overwhelming um, majority in the Senate, they probably aren't capable of breaking serve again and again and again. A president can keep teeing people up, and it's going to be hard for the Senate to keep knocking them down. Be, um, but but um, the, the Garland nomination was never a sure thing because we didn't control the Senate, we Democrats. Um, and even if he, and you say, well, he didn't even get a hearing. Fine. Fine, my friends. He gets a hearing. Now, does he get a majority vote at that hearing? Not at not so clear. Maybe he does. Maybe Susan Collins does the right thing, or maybe not. Even if he gets a majority vote at the um, at the committee, does he get a majority vote on the floor of the Senate? Not so clear he does, because there's massive um, polarization, um, political polarization, in um, uh, Supreme Court um, uh, uh, um, uh, confirmations um, uh, 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 of, of late. People don't generally change their mind, and, and, and they, they stick to their party. Um, so, so that's why um, Garland and, and, and Garland, knowing that, didn't insist on a hearing, and the Dems didn't push for an early hearing. Hillary Clinton mentioned Garland's name zero times in the Democratic National Convention because we thought we were going to win. See, you're talking about rewriting history because um, um, some of my critics have kind of rewritten what I said when and why on Kavanaugh. Same is true about rewriting history in Garland. We, we think it was stolen only afterwards because we lost the election. No one was thinking that at the time. They thought, okay, Hillary's going to win, and Garland's going to be confirmed in the lame duck or shortly thereafter in the new Clinton administration. And that's why we Democrats weren't pushing for it, because we thought, okay, this is annoying. It's being delayed by a year, but we'll get the seat because we're going to win the presidency. And we didn't win the presidency, but that doesn't mean that the seat was stolen. It means they beat us. They won it from us because they won the Senate in 2014 and then they won the Senate and the presidency um, and the House, for that matter, the trifecta in 2016. Now, the Kavanaugh nomination was fought very hard. Yes. And so was the Barrett nomination. Yes, later. And which is confirmation of what I'm saying. Almost no one crossed party lines in, in those things. And, um, uh, uh, and Amy Coney Barrett didn't have a Christine Blasey Ford issue, um, but, she, you know, but the Democrats were able to generate another issue that, that this was you know too close to an election and all the rest and they said oh mitch mcconnell is um being a hypocrite when you actually read what mitch mcconnell said and all of what he said he said if you're trying to be most charitable to him what i just said the rules are fundamentally different when a president controls the Senate, when his party controls the Senate, when he doesn't. So, of course, when he controls the Senate, things get jammed through. And when he doesn't control the Senate, things are going to be delayed or dinged. Um, and, and McConnell said all of that. And, and if this were baseball or football, you would understand the fundamental difference between divided government and unitary, uh, unified government. And you'd understand that actually... 
in recent times, um, uh, very few people have crossed party lines. Still, though, um, because we've established that the nomination was fought hard and the vote was relatively close, um, you could see why those who were fighting hard would be frustrated to see an ally of theirs, you, um, testifying on the other side of the fight. Um, right, they're so fr- but they're frustrated because they're clueless because if you ding Kavanaugh, you would get Barrett or someone to the right of Barrett, and I thought Kavanaugh, and I like Amy Coney Barrett exceedingly as a human being, but I thought she would actually be more conservative on things that I care intensely about, like um, uh, 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 same-sex marriage, like gay rights and um, LGBTQ rights um, and um, women's rights, I thought Kavanaugh was the best on the list about the things that mattered to me because I'm not comparing him to Garland. I'm comparing him to the other umpteen people on that list, and they, in my view were not as good as Kavanaugh, and I'll give you the reasons why, because that's your choice. Well, before we get to the reasons why, I think that, just to finish this sort of game theory, yes. that I think, you know, their position was, the, the opponents of the nomination were, you know, let's, let's beat it, and then we'll figure it out later. And your position was, it would be a Pyrrhic victory to defeat him, because the next one is going to be worse. Yes, and you have no theory. You, 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 you have no strategy because you don't even understand the damn rules of the game, which oh, I are... I you're not talking to me right now. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah of course. You, they, they don't understand the damn rules of the game because the present whole, you know, he, he gets to serve again and again and again. It's like a mulligan. He, keep, he gets to keep teeing people up. And, and this is what you do since, you know, you're a Robert Cairo fan and, and, uh, and you've read his Robert Moses book, Power Broker, which I haven't, and you've read all of the Lyndon Johnson books and I've only read some, but, but um, Cairo's interested in how power is exercised. Okay, this, and, and Lyndon Johnson, for example, understands power. Good presidents understand power. If you ding their first nominee, Here's what they're going to do. They're going to find someone. They may not love that person, truthfully, but you're going to hate that person and you're not going to be able to stop that person. And that's, they're going to, and this is a technical political science term, they're going to have to make you eat shit. Because <laughs> if they don't, then they're going to get rolled on everything else. You know, what's Putin going to think of them if they can't even handle some puny, puny senator, you know, from, from some podunk state? Okay, so if you block me the first time, I'm going to figure out Find out who is telegenic or you know has a compelling story, whatever. You're not going to be able to stop them. And you're going to like them less. Um, now, I actually had looked at the list. I liked the people, the other people on the list, and he was going to pick off the list. And I kept telling, and I said in my op-ed, I said in my testimony, my fellow Democrats, put up or shut up. Name someone better on the list. That's the put up or shut up. Or give me a theory as to how we're actually going to be able to stop every one of those again and again and again when Donald Trump is president and they control the Senate. And you say, oh, the elections were about to come up. This was um, uh, 2018. And, and, and so uh, we, we defeat um, Kavanaugh in September. And then we win in, and we use that, uh, generate some momentum to win the Senate in um, uh, November, um, and um, and then uh, we're going to control the Senate starting January 3rd, and then we can block him, just like they blocked for two years, um, just like they blocked 
um, Garland for one year. I'm saying, if you think that, and I'm going to just suppress the instinct to name names of my friends who actually said this and they don't know what they're talking about, okay, then you don't understand the slightest about Senate rules and Mitch McConnell because I assure you that if that happened, if we had actually managed to win back the Senate, which we did not do, in 2016. We did not do it. And, um, but if we had... 2018. Uh, 2018, excuse me. If we had, do you think for one second that Mitch McConnell would somehow have not, and Donald Trump jammed someone through in the lame duck? Of course they would. And, and I said that at the time, and now we know this was true because they did that with Amy Coney Barrett. The clueless Democrats, my friends, they, they were taking it out on me. I kept telling you, be, beware of Trump in 2016. I was screaming because you guys were all taking for granted that Hillary's going to win. I was shouting for the root press. And then, you bastards, you turn around and dump on me as if I'm responsible for, for, for Brett Kavanaugh. No, no, it's because they won the presidency and they won the Senate, and he's the best on the list. And if he's not, do your homework. Tell me someone who's better on the list, because I actually know the people on the list. And again, some of them are my, my personal friends. I like them, but on the things that we liberals care about, most of all, Obergefell, same-sex marriage, um, um, and, and, and gender equality, I think actually uh, Kavanaugh has a better track record than the other folks. I actually have read his opinions on voting rights. I think they're actually um, pretty darn good for a Republican. Um, and um, so there were reasons, I'll give you some more, um, why I thought he was better than others on the list. And, and look, I could be wrong about that, but I did my homework. And the others... I, they, I said this in my testimony and in the op-ed. Name my, my, my fellow Democrats. Please name someone better or stop fetching. So you, you did say that uh, there were some specific things that, you've, that you saw in his record right. um, regarding his uh, clerks and how the other justices seemed to regard him and so forth. Right. So first point is... I believe in Socratic wisdom, knowing what you don't know, um, and and I didn't know him that well, and I can't, and and I, I read a few opinions of each of the ju- of the of the people on the list. They were almost all judges, and you know, but but that's just a little bit, okay. So I'm looking for cues by people who know um, the nominees, uh, the, the possible nominees, better than I. So for me, here's the biggest cue of all. So uh, why why did I support? Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Many, many reasons. You know, I, I don't like the label socialist. Um, I think it's a bad trademark. He, he um, a honeymoon in the Soviet Union. I don't think that, that goes over well. That's not where middle America is. Moderate Democrats are. And if you don't win moderate Democrats, you, you don't get elected. But, but let me tell you something about Bernie Sanders. You know, now that I'm, I'm buzzing, my, buzzing myself, you know, getting things off my chest. So Bernie Sanders is a nominally, at a certain point, Democratic senator. You know, for many years, he actually only caucused with the Democrats, but called himself just a pure socialist. But then he decided he, when he wanted to run for the presidency in the Democratic Party, he had to call himself a Democrat. So he's a Democratic senator. Um, and so um, and Hillary Clinton was a former Democratic senator. And I believe they were, at a certain point, 46 um, Democrats who had served um, in the Senate with both of them. Um, they know these guys better than I do, right? Because, you know, I just see little glimpses on TV, but the the other Democratic senators should know who's good and who's not. Of all the other Democratic senators, only one backed, and they know them both, 
back Bernie Sanders. That was Jeff Merkley. And I like Jeff Merkley. I worked with him on filibuster reform. Nice guy, but um, okay, one. And one um, basically um, uh, uh, made no endorsement. That was Elizabeth Warren. She, um, and every other Democratic senator from Chuck Schumer on down, Chuck Schumer and Michael Bennett and, and Amy Klobuchar, you just pick your favorite Democratic senator, they all supported Hillary. And they had skin in the game because if, you know, because you have someone at the top of the ticket who's dreadful, um, and that drags down the whole ticket, and some of them are on the ballot themselves, and, and their friends are on the ballot. Well, they also have skin in the game based on who they believe is going to be elected, because they don't want to, right. you know, if they, if they exactly. think Hillary's more likely to no, win. No, that's what I meant. You know, yeah. on, just on electability, you know, um, they thought that, um, I, I look, as a, young, as a youngster, I supported um, um, uh, George McGovern, but he got massacred, and he actually at least was a person of great, you know, character and great virtue. He's a, a war hero. Bernie Sanders isn't worthy to lick George McGovern's boots, okay? Um, so, but George McGovern turned out to be disastrous for the Democrats because we got, in a word, shellacked. Um, and yes, the, the senators were worried that if Bernie Sanders were the nominee in 2016, you know, he, he might lose. Um, um, or and he wouldn't win convincingly, and they thought Hillary was just the, the better standard bearer because they do care about electability, and they also know the difference between a workhorse, and she was a workhorse, and a show horse, and Bernie's a show horse. He, he has no real record of, of genuine achievement. Um, at that point, he had no record a, as the senator. Um, uh, now he's, uh, you know, ahead of a very powerful Senate committee. We'll see if he's able to, uh, you know, um, help deliver um, uh, uh, this Im- important um, fiscal um, the, the, this package um, for, 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 for Biden infrastructure um, and, um, and budget package. Um, but um, the senators, knowing them both, thought, we're for Hillary, we're not for Bernie. And that's both who they thought was you know, a person of good character and who they thought is electable. Okay, and, 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 but I'm seeing that and, saying, and I'm using that as a cue, a clue. What, what do the insiders who have better information think? Now let's pick, now let's move to... Um, the, the world of picking justices. I don't know the people on the list so well. Um, I don't know Brett Kavanaugh very well, truth be told. But here's what I do know. He clerked for Anthony Kennedy for a year. And Anthony Kennedy is choosing to step down. Anthony Kennedy didn't die unexpectedly like Anthony Scalia. He's still around, thank goodness. And, uh, and I really am very of Anthony Kennedy, very close to him. I quite admire him personally. We're, we're you know, cards on the table, full disclosure, we're friends. Um, um, when I was um, a third year law student, I only applied to 11 judges um, uh, to, to clerk for. And one was Steve Breyer, and, and he said yes. Um, and, and one was Anthony Kennedy. They, they were both young federal court of appeals judges at the time, but I have expensive taste. I knew you know, who were the good people who you know, were, were well spoken. Because again, how did I know? I asked the people who did know, who were the best judges? And they said, oh, on the West Coast, that's Anthony Kennedy. He's a Republican appointee. And on the East Coast, that's Steve Breyer. He's a Democrat appointee. And I applied to them both because um, they came highly recommended by people who knew what they were talking about. When uh, I was looking to uh, help my wife choose an OBGYN when she was uh, pregnant with our children, I asked the nurses in the operating room, yes. who's, who's got the best hands? Yes, exactly. Who, because you know, they would know. So yeah, the problem is 
too many people are too narcissistic. They have too strong opinions when they don't know anything. That's the problem with Twitter. So I'm looking to try to figure out who actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah, so OB, it would be the nurses. Senators, ask the other senators, at least of that party. Um, judges, because it's, uh, we've talked about before how t increasingly you actually become a judge beginning um, by, um, right after law school, being in the judiciary as a law clerk. So Anthony Kennedy um, um, chose to step down. He didn't have a health issue. He didn't have a spousal health issue. Um, O'Connor stepped down because of her, her, her spouse's um, um, uh, health. Kennedy is choosing to step down. This, is, this takes us to our Breyer episode. You know, justices have a choice. He cares intensely about his legacy. You know, he cares more intensely as, as anyone else would, you know, obviously. Um, and his legacy is all bound up with his most famous set of cases, I would probably say, are the, uh, the um, uh, gay rights cases. Um, uh, uh, Romer versus Evans, Lawrence uh, versus Texas, um, Windsor um, versus U.S., and Obergefell. Okay. Now, if you put two and two together, he spent a year with Kavanaugh, and he's choosing to step, to, and he cares about his legacy, and he's choosing to step down, and he knows that Kavanaugh is basically kind of in the in 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 the betting odds, kind of the the, the favorite, the top of the list, and he probably anticipates it's possible that he, I don't think he had any prearrangement with President Trump, but but. Um, as a matter of courtesy, President Trump, after he announces his resignation, might even ask him what he thought about his successor. I don't know if that's such a conversation took place, but it wouldn't shock me that it did. It wouldn't be improper. They did meet, didn't they? They did, and, and, but, and it wasn't there. And, but, but, but Kennedy could have anticipated that in that conversation, it was at least possible he might get asked. Um, and I think he wanted Kavanaugh. Um, and I think he might have even said so. I think he might have also put in a good word for at least one other of his clerks. He, he wants to be succeeded probably by one of his law clerks because they are, um, you know, if you, um, m the people who are most likely to carry on his legacy. And that's why... Well, they're probably the people that he was able to explain his judicial philosophy to. Whether or not they adopted it, yeah. you know, who knows. But but, uh, but he spent but a year he, uh, with them, you uh, know, and, and saw them. So, as I said, we're going to talk about Amy Coney Barrett, whom I like as a human being exceedingly. And I have reasons for liking her. I've seen her up close. I've talked to people who've worked with her. Um, but she clerked for Scalia. And, she, and Scalia opposed Anthony Kennedy in every one of those cases I mentioned, and fiercely so. Scalia was bad on gay rights. You know, bad in Lawrence versus Texas, bad in Romer versus Evans, bad in Obergefell, um, uh, Windsor also. So, and... And Amy Coney Barrett is a Scalia acolyte. Um, and if I have a seat, when, when my party loses both the presidency and the Senate, here are my choices, my fellow Americans, you know, the uh, audience members. I'm going to get, you know, bluntly, basically a Kennedy clerk or a Scalia clerk. Gorsuch was actually close to both. You know, he, he actually clerked for Kennedy, but Scalia was his beau ideal, okay? Um, but Kavanaugh is not a Scalia. I, I, Kavanaugh, 
I think was more of a Kennedy person. I didn't know him well, but Kennedy did, and Kennedy is choosing to step down, thinking that it would probably be Kavanaugh. That's information for me, just like who do the nurses say are the best you know, um, uh, uh, OB person? Who, who do the senators think um, the fellow Democratic senators is the, you know, is, is the best fellow Democratic senator running for president? So, that w- so I had read a lot of judicial decisions, several judicial decisions by both Kavanaugh, which impressed me, um, on voting rights, um, on the nature of the unitary executive, um, um, and um, in, in some other areas. And I'd read opinions by some of the others on the list, which were fine, but were not as impressive. They didn't. Um, when you're on the D.C. Circuit, you have more opportunities to write about things that tend to go to the Supreme Court. So, so I thought Kavanaugh had more seasoning that way. Okay, so I read the opinions, and I thought Kavanaugh were, were better. Um, I looked at his um, training. I thought, he is a Kennedy clerk. That's as good as I'm going to get. And Kennedy knows him well and se- seems to, to, to like him. Um, um, before um, the, the nomination, actually, I was at a wedding. I won't go into details. Um, in New York City, and, um, and at, at, at my table, there was Justice Kennedy and, and Brett Kavanaugh, and, we all, and, and there weren't too many others, and yours truly, and, and maybe three or four others, um, spouses. Um, and it seemed to me they had a, you know, a very good chemistry. Um, so that was just a little bit of observation. Um, uh, then, what other cues do I have? The other members of the D.C. Circuit, because I know some of the other judges on the D.C. Circuit, all seem to respect Kavanaugh. That's information. People like Merrick Garland. So that's information to me. Then um, the justices themselves seem to really respect Kavanaugh. Why? Why do I think that? Because they cite him by name um, and followed his lead in several areas of law where he actually teed up um, uh, ideas that then, then that they followed. That's interesting. They hired his law clerks, and every justice did across the spectrum, um, and he had placed mo- as many law clerks on the Supreme Court as any other um, judge in America. I think one person was tied with him, maybe. Um, and it was judges, uh, justices across the spectrum, and that's also telling me, oh, um, Kavanaugh is hiring um, law students across the spectrum. He's hiring law students to be his law clerks who could, the following year, plausibly clerk for Sonia Sotomayor or Steve Breyer or Elena Kagan. He's not imposing a strict ideological litmus test on his law clerks. That's interesting and, and a good sign um, for me. Several of the people who clerked for him are my former students. Some of them were my TAs and head TAs. And to a person... They all spoke well of him. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't ask them for you know t- details because that would be, I think, improper to, to intrude upon the, the close confidential relationship between um, uh, a law clerk and a judge. But I do ask them. You know, was he? You know, was your? I ask everyone. Was your judge a good judge? Would you recommend your judge to to uh, um, uh, to others? Because you you have to be straight with me because I'm I'm giving advice to the next generation of law students. So so tell me. And I, I ask judges, uh, clerks in other chambers. Tell me which judges um, that you didn't clerk for, um, your judge had particular respect for, or that you came to have particular respect for. So. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to get as much information as I can, and all the information I'm getting is very positive. And many of Kavanaugh's cl- clerks 
actually were women, um, very impressive women, and they all spoke well of him and spoke well of him uh, as someone who treated women well, which is important to me. Now, again, I don't know what happened when he was 17 years old and Christine Blasey Ford, and I have no firsthand knowledge of, of, of any of that. Um, I don't know any of the people involved um, uh, at that time, um, you know, any of the other eyewitnesses or whatever. Um, but I do know these law clerks, and they're, some of them are my own um, uh, former TAs, and they're saying, wow, he was really a good judge. Um, and he treated you know, uh, uh, women law clerks very well, and he's tried to encourage them in their careers. And I think that's good. Okay, so now he's on the court. And um, you know, what are some of the important decisions that he was involved with in the last year or two? And you know, what have you learned about him uh, sitting on the court? So um, we still don't know a lot, but um, a few things. Number one, he votes overwhelmingly with John Roberts. Good. Because um, I, I, you, you, our audience knows, I, think, I respect John Roberts, and they have, the, I think, the highest um, coefficient of um, agreement of any two justices, not just any two um, Republican appointees. Like, they vote together 94% of the time. Um, and... Um, this is good because I think John Roberts is a reasonable Republican, and uh, and you know that um, I've said that on many occasions. Two, his most important opinion for the court in his first year, built on his student note, which was about um, uh, um, condemning race discrimination in the jury process, um, and uh, and Mississippi basically had. Um, uh, exclude wrongfully, basically excluded um, uh, blacks uh, from uh, the jury using a process known as peremptory challenges, and and that's what Brett Kavanaugh's note was all about. And he wrote a, um, an, a good majority opinion condemning this practice. And uh, my theory is that voting rights and uh, the rights to vote and the rights to serve and vote on a jury are closely correlated. The voting rights, uh, the ability, the right of people to uh, not be discriminated against um, in uh, the, uh, the process of uh, juror selection is very similar to the right of people not to be discriminated against um, in casting uh, uh, votes on election day. So the 15th Amendment has, in my view, strong implications for um, uh, jury service and Kavanaugh seems to understand some of that. So did Kennedy. Um, I wrote about that in an earlier book, a whole chapter on Kennedy's um, vision of, of, of equality. Um, and, and I think um, there's another area where Kavanaugh has carried forward the Kennedy legacy because Kennedy was very hostile to race discrimination against prospective jurors. So... Um, uh, that was a case called Mississippi versus Flowers, and that was a good decision. And so now you see why I was particularly interested also in Kavanaugh's um, uh, voting rights jurisprudence. And to repeat, um, Kavanaugh wrote his student note, which I wasn't involved in, but he wrote a student note about race discrimination in the jury process. So um, then we come to uh, 2000 and there was a little nanosecond in the run-up to the 2000 election. 2020. Oh, thank you. The 2020 election. Uh, you'll see why I, I made that yeah, Freudian slip. Yeah, I think you got slip. a little, uh, that, that, a little I, made the, I made that Freudian slip because um, there were people in the run-up to the 2020 election that were trying to revive Bush versus Gore. 
And one of them was Neil Gorsuch, and we talked about that in a previous episode, and I you know, was very critical of that. And, and Sam Alito um, tried to revive Bush versus Gore, and so did um, Justice Thomas. Um, but John Roberts never joined them and, and explained why they were wrong. And Brett Kavanaugh, for a nanosecond, seemed to basically be interested in reviving Bush versus Gore in September, October, and then backed away. Good for him. He backed away. Um, in between that, when he kind of stuck his toe in the water and seemed to say Bush versus Gore-like things, um, I wrote an op-ed with uh, Neil Katyal. I think we can now uh, return to calling him the great Neil Katyal. Um, and my brother Vic Amar in the uh, New York Times saying, this is outrageous. Who knows if he read it or not, but he stopped um, uh, basically reviving Bush, for, tr- saying things that seem to revive Bush for score. Um, specifically, um, the issue that I'm talking about is whether the U.S. Supreme Court should jump in when they think state Supreme Courts are um, misconstruing state constitutions in ways that limit state legislatures when it comes to the laws that state legislatures have passed applicable to selecting presidential electors. Um, um, As we talked about in an early episode, and I'll just briefly recap, Article 2 says that state legislatures get to lay down the rules for picking state elector, electors. Um, uh, so um, th- in theory, state legislatures could actually pass a law saying, um, um, uh, we're going to pick the electors ourselves. Since 1828, no state really has done that, um, except for South Carolina. South Carolina's legislature kept picking electors up to 1860. Um, um, but basically since 1828, almost every state basically has said um, the, the, the voters should pick. Either winner-take-all or today in Maine and Nebraska, winner-take-most. So the voters pick, but the state legislature lays down the rules. <clears throat> but what if the rules that the state legislature has laid down are in tension with the state constitution? Um, Three justices in Bush versus Gore said, who cares about the state constitution as construed by the state? Judges, they have no role whatsoever because Article 2 says it's the state legislature. And that's stupid, in my view. Um, um, And that's the argument that Justice Thomas has tried to revive and Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch and for a nanosecond, Brett Kavanaugh tried to revive. Here's why it's stupid. One, because the state legislature is itself a product of state constitution. So the state constitution shapes what the state legislature can do. Um, two, and, and, and that's what um, uh, several justices said in um, Bush versus Gore, uh, uh, Justice Stevens in particular, there was never a majority on the other side. There were three justices on the other side because there was a fractured um, uh, a decision in Bush versus Gore. But Justices Scalia uh, and, and Thomas and Chief Justice Rehnquist said, oh no, the state constitutions has no role to play and therefore state Supreme Court has no role to play. It has to be the state legislature. Three justices said that. It wasn't five. It was a stupid argument and, and Stephen says why it's stupid because the state constitution you know, is the, the, the higher legislature, as it were, and, um, and defines state legislative power. Um, um, 
Second, even if that weren't true as a matter of first principles, it's true today as a matter of precedent because in an opinion authored by none other than John Roberts, the court said when it comes to congressional elections um, uh, where Article One says state legislatures have a role to play, um, the state constitution also has a role to play. And the, the people of a state, by a state constitutional um, uh, uh, a referendum or initiative, can um, determine in part the rules for congressional elections. So if the, if the state constitution apl- can uh, apply for Article 1, which says the state legislature can, can decide certain rules about congressional elections, that's equally true for Article 2, which says the state legislature can decide certain things for, for about presidential lectures. So to repeat, if, if the state constitution governs when it comes to uh, congressional elections under Article 1, even though it says state legislature, same is true for Article 2 for presidential elections. That's an argument from precedent. And point three, and this is my unique point, even if the state constitution doesn't apply of its own force automatically, a state legislature could surely choose to make the state constitution applicable, and in fact, state legislatures have chosen to do that. How? By basically saying, we want the presidential part of the ballot to be decided by the same rules that every other part of the ballot is decided by, and for the other part of the ballot, um, having to do with state legislatures and state governors and, and state um, uh, uh, um, attorneys general and the like, state constitution applies. Um, and the state legislature has chosen, in effect, to say we want the same basic rules about when you file the ballot and, and, um, and, uh, um, and, and how you check the box and, and where you show up um, on election day and all the rest. We want this, the rules to be the same for the presidential part of the ballot. If you didn't have that, you'd have an absurd situation. Yes. Where, you know, you say, well, uh, the Supreme Court says that this part of the ballot is not valid for president, so only part of the ballot counts? You it, know, it, it makes it, no it, sense. Right. And, and, and if the legislature perhaps could say that very explicitly, but they've never said that. And, and so if, for example, so here's how it arose. It arose in Pennsylvania, these issues. The statute said, oh, um, absentee ballots have to be received by 8 p.m. election day. But the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, in effect, reinterpreted the rules because they said, because oh, of COVID, um, people might think that they're going to um, vote in person. Um, but then they get a COVID positive test the day before um, uh, uh, the voting day. And so instead, they send in their absentee ballot. And we don't want them to show up at the polls if they're COVID positive. So we're going to say that um, in this situation, reread the state law in light of broader state constitutional principles that are designed to encourage people from vote to vote. And that's a state constitutional principle. We're going to say as long as the ballot is um, cast... Uh, by 8 p.m. election day, it's okay as, as long as it, it, it arrives in the mail within, th- I think they said, three additional days or something. And, and, and some justices were hopping up and down. They say, the state statute doesn't say that, and you're usurping the power 
um, that Article 2 vests in the state legislature. Okay, and I'm saying, but the state legislature has chosen to have presidential ballots be part of the same process as gubernatorial ballots and, and, and state legislative ballots. And, and if the rule for all the rest of, uh, of the of, uh, election procedure is um, it just has to be postmarked at 8 p.m. election day, the same rules sensibly apply um, to the presidential part because the state legislature has chosen to um, involve the state constitution and the state judiciary. But, and Kavanaugh got that and after. He, he stopped saying silly things um, after this op-ed. Again, who knows if he read it, if his clerks read it, but good for him that he stopped. Just from a layman's point of view, it seems to me that the state legislature doesn't get to act in contravention of the state constitution ever. That's Stevens' it's al- point. It's always bound by the state that's constitution. My, that's my view. And, and who gets to say what the state constitution says? the state's Supreme Court, or right. the and, highest court. And, and, and they know the Constitution much better than the Supreme Court Exactly. Does. And so. that's not just Stevens for writing for three justices in Bush versus Gore back in 2000. That's why I kept saying 2000, because you know, it was a Freudian slip. But what um, John Roberts said in a more recent case involving Arizona, involving uh, gerrymandering, where he says, yes, Article 1 says state legislature decides certain rules about congressional districting, at least in the first instance. But the state legislature is a product of the state constitution, and if the voters want to amend the state constitution in certain ways, they're allowed to under Article 1. And if they're allowed to get involved in Article 1 for congressional districting, logic suggests that they're equally allowed to get involved in in the state constitution and coming up with rules for Article 2 when it comes to presidential electors. But even if that weren't true, even if you said, oh, there's a distinction between Article 1 and Article 2, or we think that that um, Arizona case was wrongly decided, even if you think all of that, you are being disrespectful of the state legislature, which has chosen to adopt rules that in everything except, you know, in the most ex- you know, explicit way, saying we want this procedure to be decided the same way that everything else is decided um, by the state Supreme Court. Okay. And yes, and then, you know, I, I remember you were outraged and you wrote an op-ed together with, with Neil, I believe. Yes, and, uh, and my and brother, brother Vic. Vic. Yeah. And, you know, for whether that was it or not, Kavanaugh, you know, another case came up and Kavanaugh, uh, then Justice Kavanaugh then s- echoed the Chief Justice's uh, reasoning or at least voted along with it. Yes. Um, and so two op-eds in the... New York Times, one that the liberals hated, you know, one that the arch conservatives hated, and um, so you must so, be doing something right. Well, um, I call, <laughs> you know, just like the umpire, uh, uh, and, and I actually um, uh, um, um, like um, more than most. I think the umpire analogy is imperfect, judges as umpires, but it captures something. Uh, Roberts believes in this metaphor. Actually, so did. Um, um, uh, Kavanaugh, one thing that captures is umpires aren't supposed to play for either team. See, they're not supposed to be Trump justices or red justices. We often talk about, you know, the president who appoint them, but judicial independence is um, precisely that you should feel free to vote against the president who puts you on the court. And they all at the end of the day did, because then, and I, I think some of them were saying silly things in, in October, um, reviving Bush versus Gore, but then when all these 
ridiculous accusations of um, electoral uh, fraud surfaced, none of the justices um, uh, uh, went along with these um, uh, outlandish claims. And, and at lower courts, Trump appointed judges like Stephanus Bibas, one of my former students, um, said that you know, these allegations are preposterous. And now Trump-appointed judges um, are, um, hold, uh, are uh, uh, sanctioning the, the lawyers who misbehaved in that process, who um, um, lied to the court. Now, Kavanaugh, before we move on to uh, Amy Coney Barrett, he was uh, he joined up with uh, Justices Breyer and Sotomayor on a, in a recent case, right about uh, draft about the draft. Yes, it was um, didn't get a lot of attention because it was um, uh, what's called the shadow docket. It didn't generate um, a, an oral argument and a full blown opinion. The question was a preliminary one: Should the Supreme Court revisit a case called Rostker versus Goldberg? in which the court um, upheld um, a male-only draft. The court, in an opinion by William Rehnquist, said male-only draft is constitutional. Um, and I would say, of course it's not constitutional. Women should be equal in military service. The Second Amendment says that basically your military should be representative of your, of your polity. The, uh, the people should... Uh, the, the militia should embody the people, um, just like a jury should embody the people, a House of Representatives should embody the people, the people politically. So plus or minus, your voters should be represented in the House of Representatives. They should be represented on a jury. We talked about before, just like the 15th Amendment, even though it's about voting, has relevance for jury service. And they should be represented on the military. The military should look like America. And if it doesn't, that's where coup d'etat come from, where the military is actually not a representative institution. If it's got its own agenda, because it looks so different from from the civil society, from the the, the, the democratic um, government, that's deeply destabilizing. You do not want your military to be utterly unrepresentative. Okay, so that's the Second Amendment. And then when the 19th Amendment comes along, it says women vote. Well, if women vote, they should actually be on juries. They should be voting on juries. They should be voting in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. They should be eligibly be president, Hillary Clinton and Vice President um, Kamala Harris. And they should be in the military equally. So Rosker was clearly wrongly decided, I think. Um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of her greatest opinions ever, the VMI case that was about women being excluded from a military institute, although it's not... Um, it's, it, its main function today is actually to produce political leaders, VMI, and, and your military leaders often become your political leaders, whether their names are George Washington or Ulysses S. Grant or um, Dwight Eisenhower or, um, or John McCain, for that matter. Um, um, military service all, often is followed by, by political service. Bob Dole, John McCain, John Kennedy, John Kerry, and if we don't have women equal in the military, we will have Johns and Bobs, but not Joannas and Robertas, you see. And so, so if you take seriously the 19th Amendment vision, women's political equality, and the Second Amendment vision, that, the, that there, your, your armed forces, I would say your police as well, should be representative of, 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 of basically your, um, um, your, your political um, um, uh, actors, um, uh, the sovereign people, the people should be the militia, and women are now part of the people politically in the 19th Amendment, the way they weren't before. 
Roscoe's wrongly decided. That's what I believe. And Sonia Sotomayor and Steve Breyer voted to hear a case that would have teed up for the court whether um, Roscoe versus Goldberg, this bad Rehnquist opinion, in my view, should be overruled. And who joined them? Not Elena Kagan, sadly, because I think she is hesitant to um, hear any case that might involve um, a revisiting or overturning a precedent because she just wants to basically say, uh, you know, uh, say row, 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 um, your boat, <laughs> um, row versus Wade. And, and so she's just b basically become someone who's emphatically emphasized precedent. I think it's wrong. The Supremacy Clause does not make precedent supreme. It makes the Constitution supreme. So who joins Breyer and Souter, who, uh, Breyer and Sotomayor, who are, are Democrat appointees? Not Kagan, not any of the other Republican appointees, not Amy Coney Barrett, you know, a Republican woman on the court, but Brett Kavanaugh, who gets it on women's rights. Good for you, Brett. Okay, and you know who's smiling? I think Anthony Kennedy might be smiling with that, maybe. You know, just seeing, you know, um, um, the, 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 the gender um, equality idea. Gays in the military, too, of course. Same idea as women in the military. Um, so... Um, so that's the Brett Kavanaugh that I thought I saw. Um, someone who did understand women's rights, did understand political equality, cared about juries, um, cared, I think, about um, political participation and, and, and voting rights, and backed away um, from uh, the, um, uh, his uh, flirtation with Bush versus Gore. Okay, so you mentioned uh, Justice Barrett, so... Brett Kavanaugh has gotten his due here. And, uh, and, and, and who dissented in the VMI case? One, okay, because Rehnquist kind of has a, has a um, uh, kind of concurring opinion. Um, and Thomas recused himself because the son was at VMI. One dissenter in the VMI case who thought it was just hunky-dory that um, Virginia Military Institute basically, which for decades was open only to men. And then under the threat of litigation, opened it up to women, but gave them a skim milk version of VMI without all the, the, um, the, um, uh, the reputation and the honor and, and the full stature of a VMI degree. And, and the other justices saw the difference between VMI for men and VMI for women and said these are not remotely the same in terms of, of uh, equal educational opportunities. Um, um, and one justice didn't get it. And his name was Antonin Scalia. And he just said, he was like, Tevya, tradition. The problem is the Constitution doesn't say tradition. It says equality. And here are three domains where equality beats tradition. Brown versus Board of Education, because there was a tradition of segregation, but equal, it says equal, and separate wasn't equal. Um, and um, um, second is um, uh, in... in, in, in uh, the, the, the voting um, right, one person, um, one vote, Reynolds versus Sims, long tradition of, uh, of uh, malapportionment, but it says equal. Third is Obergefell, long tradition of um, discrimination against gays and lesbians in marriage, but it says equal. So three areas where equal trumps tradition. Um, Brown, Reynolds, Obergefell, and Scalia doesn't get it. He's the one dissenter in uh, VMI. It was perfectly okay for VMI to give males many more leadership and, and military opportunities than females. 
And now you see why I was, although I like her personally, I was nervous about someone who, whose first introduction to the judiciary, really at, at the high at the high level, was a, a Supreme Court clerkship, not with Anthony Kennedy, you know, my my friend and role model. I don't agree with everything. He, he was on the wrong side in Bush versus Gore and in Sebelius and Shelby County versus Holder case, for for that matter. Um, um, so not perfect, but. I was more an admirer of Kennedy's cases than I was of Scalia's cases in the main. And so that's why I wanted a Kennedy clerk more than a Scalia clerk. And that's why I was nervous about Amy Coney Barrett, um, who, true to form, did not actually join the crusade to, um, um, over, uh, to take a case that would overrule Rosker versus Goldberg. So, and again, none of the other Republican appointees did. Only Kavanaugh. This was went under the radar screen because it, it didn't generate an oral argument. But um, uh, uh, I cheered, um, and I th- and I cheered in part because I said, "Oh, I was right. Kavanaugh was the person on this that I thought he he, he might be." So, coming to Justice Barrett, um, you mentioned her background as a Scalia clerk. Um, now, what about uh, her confirmation? Anything notable in her confirmation? That it was jammed through because um, Mitch McConnell had the votes. But she did, she did um, receive some attacks in the hearing, particularly from uh, Diane Feinstein. That was especially when she was nominated earlier for the, um, her circuit court position. And Diane Feinstein... Know, was worried that she was some sort of theocrat because she is a deeply religious person and asked some genuinely stupid questions in a genuinely stupid way about uh, Justice Barrett's faith life. Um, and then and there, it, and deep down, um, uh, uh, Senator Feinstein, it's awkward she's truthfully even on the Senate Judiciary Committee because she's not law-trained. Um, and... Um, uh, so, um, Senator Feinstein cares intensely about Roe versus Wade and saw Amy Coney Barrett as a possible Supreme Court nominee because she's just got a compelling biography. You know, she, she's just, a, a, um, just she, um, an amazing, I mean, she's articulate, she's smart, she happens to be telegenic. Um, she's a superwoman, super mom, um, um, uh, brilliant career, but also she, um, um, I, th- I think, has maybe five kids, maybe more, um, some, some more than one of whom is adopted. Just a, a, a compelling human being. Um, and Feinstein saw, oh, if I, if this, and, and the way you get on the Supreme Court is by getting on the circuit court first. Um, not eight of the of the nine justices were sitting federal court of appeals judges at the time of their appointment. Only Elena Kagan wasn't. So Feinstein sees, oh, if Amy Coney Barrett is on the Seventh Circuit and she's going to be a p- real prospect for the Supreme Court, and she doesn't like Roe versus Wade, um, and and Feinstein knows all that, and and um, and asks Barrett, I think, some awkward questions about Barrett's faith life, and in that moment, makes Barrett a superstar. On, on the right, actually. She's the exact opposite of what Feinstein was trying to do, um, which is keep Barrett off the court. She, she made Barrett, at that moment, 
um, if not the favorite, one of the two favorites for, for the court. And again, even though I like her, because she's a Scalia clerk, I'm more ang- I don't know them that well, but, but she seems to actually, I, I read some of her writing, she thinks too well of Scalia. Um, and I, that made me nervous for the reasons that we've identified. So I basically thought that um, um, uh, uh, when there was um, this uh, um, uh, a vacancy, when Kennedy stepped down, my choice was between, in effect, a Kennedy clerk and a Scalia clerk. I thought it would come down to Kavanaugh versus Barrett. Um, and even though, on a personal level, you know, I very much like Barrett. I worried that um, she'd be more of a Scalia clerk, and uh, and, I, and I preferred a Kennedy clerk. Since I keep mentioning personal things, some of the other people on the list, you know, one of them, um, Steve Colleton, my brother was you know one of his groomsmen, you know, in, in his wedding. Some of these people are very close to me personally. I like them a lot, but that's not what it's about. That's what Trump thinks it's about. Who is my friend? Who will be loyal to me? You know. No, it's about who actually has the expertise and the judgment and the vision to do the job, um, uh, uh, which is, in my view, ultimately, to interpret the Constitution faithfully. Well, she's, she's had a year on the court, and, uh, and she was involved in a decision. She had an interesting uh, comment, uh, and I guess it was a... Uh, Concurrence on uh, on Fulton, that which we talked, we talked about. about with with Neil Katyal. Um, so yeah, it's probably her most significant pronouncement thus far. She remember last year was her first year on the court. She um, joined a little bit late, so she actually I think got assigned one less opinion than any of the other justices. Some actually maybe even had two more um, uh, majority opinions assigned. And you're not typically going to get. Um, the, the the juiciest assignments as the most junior justice. Now, Anthony Kennedy got juicy assignments from day one because he was the swing justice, and it sometimes came down to him. Um, so, um, uh, so I think her most notable pronouncement is um, an opinion, a concurring opinion in Fulton, joined by, interestingly enough, Brett Kavanaugh. What I like about... Um, this short concurrence is its Socratic wisdom. She has humility, um, and humility is a great judicial virtue. I think Anthony Scalia lacked humility. Um, I lack humility, which is why I think um, I'm better suited to be an academic than uh, to be um, uh, a a judge or justice. Um, So um, what I like about this opinion that she wrote is um, she um, didn't get too far out over her skis. Let me set the stage, remind the audience what was at issue. The issue is um, whether um, a government policy that doesn't single out religion for disfavored treatment um, explicitly and that isn't motivated by hostility to religion, but that, in fact, um, interferes with um, religion in some way, but again, not necessarily by by design, whether that law is presumptively or government policy unconstitutional. Uh, An example. Um, Let's imagine, for example, that uh, 
the government prohibits wine, prohibition. Um, and it's not doing it for any, uh, in order to hurt any one religion, um, uh, but as a practical matter, it interferes with the use of sacramental wine. Um, is that law presumptively unconstitutional, um, even though it wasn't motivated by any um, animus toward religion? Uh, one eminent, uh, the Supreme Court, in an opinion by none other than Anton Scalia, said those laws are generally okay uh, if they're not designed, if they're not explicitly targeted at religion and not motivated by religious animus, um, they're okay. A case called Smith. In Fulton, um, which Neil talked about, um, religious groups um, trying to get the court to overturn Smith. Um, and the court didn't need to really um, address the issue. It went off on a, on a, uh, a slightly different basis. Um, but Justice Barrett writes a concurrence saying, gee, I'm not sure if Smith should be overruled. It's true, she says, um, that some scholars have, have argued that it should be overruled. Um, but And here she was very careful about what she knew and didn't know. No, and let me actually read you what she wrote. In Employment Division v. Department of Human Resources of Oregon v. Smith, 1990, this court held that a neutral and generally applicable law typically does not violate the free exercise clause, no matter how severely that law burdens religious exercise. Petitioners, their amici, scholars, and justices of this court have made serious arguments that Smith ought to be overruled. While history looms large in this debate, I find the historical record more silent than supportive on the question whether the founding generation understood the First Amendment to require religious exemptions from generally applicable laws in at least some circumstances. In my view, the textual and structural arguments against Smith are more compelling. As a matter of text and structure, it's difficult to see why the Free Exercise Clause, loan among the First Amendment freedoms, offers nothing more than protection from discrimination. Okay, and then she goes on to say, and what would replace Smith? And I'm not sure, so let's go slow. First, what I like is she's not ideological in the sense that, you know, she's just gung-ho for religion no matter what, which see, Diane Feinstein thought. Second, she is, and I, I'm not sure she's right about this, but she's saying, oh, it's possible that textually um, there seems to be a strong argument for exemption, but historically there isn't, so they might be actually at cross purposes. This is um, uh, a deep insight that uh, Sir Philip Bobbitt has, has identified, that sometimes arguments um, from constitutional law using one um, kind of argument, modality, may point in a different direction than arguments from another modality. So maybe, you know, the history looks one way or the text and the text looks another. That's the mark of a careful justice. So they're not just trying to always make everything just line up, Procrustes' bed, make it all fit. That, 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 again, remember, I'm reading tea leaves. This is the most important paragraph she's written thus far as a justice um, in a constitutional issue. But, but I like... Even, I, even though I'm not sure she's right about that, um, I, I like the fact that she's, she's really open. Third, I agree with her completely that the history does not support, at least of the founding, a strong exemption vision. 
the great Michael McConnell, a preeminent scholar at Stanford, a dear friend of mine, has tried to say, oh, historically, um, uh, if you, uh, there's a strong originalist case for exemptions. It's a big article in the Harvard Law Review. And I don't think the evidence supports that at all, and I've said so um, in, in print. Because, um, oh, it's a pretty big deal um, if uh, presumptively any law that interferes with religious practice is unconstitutional. Because there are all sorts of religions, and religions can believe all sorts of things. So, so one religion says, oh, well, we have to kill the infidels. So does that mean murder laws as applied to them when they're killing infidels is unconst- presumptively unconstitutional because um, you know, that's what their, cause their religion invites or compels because Allah wills it um, or because you know, the Bible says so. We, we have to stone people who commit adultery or, or something like that because well, that's our religion. Um, we have to throw people um, um, uh, in, in, uh, into the volcano to appease the volcano god. Um, our religion says that we can't take certain medicines and uh, because we don't believe in, in, in modern science. And so, so no one, they can't be vaccinated um, against their will, even if they pose a deadly threat to, to the rest of us. So um, that would be a pretty big consequence, an elephant in terms of its consequences. And there's very little evidence for this historically. I've, I'm, I'm, um, I use the word elephant because the, the, Famous phrase is, elephants don't hide in mouse holes. That's such a big consequence. You'd expect to see lots of evidence for that, and you don't. And she, that's what she says. Good for her. But she says, oh, but textually, um, it seems that there is an ex- exemption. Isn't it an abridgment of the free exercise of, of religion if you're not allowed to do something that your religion compels, or you're prohibited um, um, uh, uh, or, or you're required to do something that your religion prohibits? And I say, no, textually, look at it. It's about the, it says, Congress shall, it's absolutist. It says, Congress shall make no law abridging the free exercise of religion. Um, and textually, if there were an exemption, it could never be overridden. You know, you you just re, you you're reading into it some. Oh well, you could override it if there were compelling interest. That's not what it says textually, and it makes sense textually if it's only about laws targeting religion as such, because you can't have an absolute categorical prohibition on that, or law, laws that are um, based on animus against religion. That should be categorically in all or virtually all cases, except for some weird unprovided for case, prohibited. But here, the main examples of religious accommodation are are um, uh, are, are ones that that, that that could never be an absolute rule. Well, um, also, sometimes it comes in conflict with other with other uh, elements of the Bill of Rights. For example, prayer in the schools, um, and that sort of thing. If if your uh, if your religion mandates a certain thing that's prohibited us, but but no. The language of the of the amendment it's about the time when the law is made. It's about the making of the law and the improper motivation at the time that the law is made. But on an exemption view, the the religion that's being intruded upon, you know, it might not even exist at the time the law is made. Um, or it's a religious pr- the the practice, you know, um, the religious belief might not exist at that point. So so textually. I think she's wrong. The First Amendment is about the making of 
the law and at the time the law is made, it's saying its addressee is Congress. Congress, colon, make no law targeting religion as such, discriminate against it. Um, but if you just pass a general prohibition law and you don't even know that, that, that there's some religion out there that uses sacramental wine, and there might not be at that moment, uh, you have a law pro, um, in Smith, it was a law prohibiting uh, certain kinds of peyote use. It's possible that there wasn't even um, uh, um, an, a very prominent um, uh, a re religious group at that moment that used peyote in religious practice, but the, the, that religious group emerged later on. So, so I actually think she's wrong uh, um, that the text um, uh, seems to um, I invite an accommodation plus some sort of balancing test. But what I like is she's proceeding cautiously, carefully. Um, now, there is an argument for religious exemption, but it's not a First Amendment argument. McConnell's looking in the wrong place. It's a 14th Amendment argument because the 14th Amendment makes free exercise and other rights applicable against states and localities. Fulton involved Pens Philadelphia, involved Pennsylvania, a state. And note what the fourth, 14th Amendment says. It takes language of the First Amendment but modifies it. No state shall make or enforce any law. Well, now you're talking about the moment of enforcement and not just making, and maybe now there is a tension between the religious practice and, and, and the law as imposition. And, and, and in fact, it's possible that the framers of the 14th Amendment did believe in exemptions, even if the framers of the First Amendment didn't. She doesn't get into all of that, uh, and I don't think she's fully mastered all the scholarship on this. She didn't just automatically reflexively in this knee-jerk way, oh, I'm the, 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 the uh, advocate of um, the religious right or something. And remember, Kavanaugh follows her in all of this. She, she did not just say McConnell um, and uh, exemption. Um, she says, hmm, this, uh, I, we should go carefully, and, and, and the historical argument is uh, not made. Um, now, um, she was helped by good lawyering in this case because Neil's firm wrote the brief. Neil uh, signed it, as did um, his um, uh, protege, my protege also, Tom Schmidt, who was uh, um, head TA uh, for me um, uh, when he was a student at Yale Law School. Here's what Neil and Tom's brief in that very case said. Petitioner, the religious petitioners contend, relying largely on the work of Professor McConnell, that Smith is contrary to the text and original understanding of the Free Exercise Clause. Justice Scalia, however, rebutted these arguments virtually point by point in his concurrence in City of Bernie v. Flores. And as one leading originalist scholar has put it, Professor McConnell's exemption thesis, quote, lacks textual and structural support and finds next to no historical support. Akil Ridamar, The Bill of Rights, page 327, note 96. Now, note how good a job Neil did at Neil and Tom. They're writing for Amy Coney Barrett. So if you're writing for Amy Coney Barrett, you mention Justice Scalia because she clerked for Justice Scalia. And, you know, she's an originalist to a certain extent, and Kavanaugh says he's an originalist, so you make originalist arguments, and you cite an originalist scholar, and you say, actually, here's a substantial original scholar who's saying McConnell is completely wrong. And I do think my friend Michael McConnell to the extent he's making a First Amendment argument is wrong. He might, in the end, be right for reasons having to do with the 14th Amendment, but he never made that case. My student, Kurt Lash, did 
um, in some interesting scholarship. But what I like about Amy Coney Barrett's one paragraph, and she, she elaborated a little bit more in the following paragraph, is she's reading carefully. She's, she recognizes, actually, that the historical argument is not strong. Um, Professor Hamburger, Phil, uh, Philip Hamburger, a, a leading conservative, has also critiqued Professor McConnell uh, on this count. And, um, and it's a really difficult job being a Supreme Court justice. In the first year, steep learning curve. This was the most important um, uh, uh, constitutional uh, um, uh, uh, text that she generated as opposed to joining um, an opinion written by others. And it suggests that she's got humility and intelligence and um, uh, and uh, uh, judgment um, and uh, and so so far so good and Kavanaugh's with her on that good for him. So and of course it never hurts to cite Akil Moore in your brief. <laughs> so um, yes, and, and and Justice Barrett just saying it it would never hurt to cite Justice Moore in your your opinion either. Just just <laughs> just saying. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're here at, a, at an Everscholar program. The program's called The First American Founding. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of Akil going on here in New York this week, along with the great Stephen Smith um, uh, that are leading, leading our course. And um, we're going to have, as a guest professor at this course for uh, several days, uh, Gordon Wood. That's been mentioned many times in this podcast. And we hope and expect that we'll corral Gordon for an hour or two, uh, and uh, he'll be a guest on America's Constitution. That would be very cool. Thank you very much, and we look forward to that.